Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. Do you know me? I play an important position on the Los Angeles Rams. I own them, and that's a big financial responsibility. That's why I carry the American Express card. After all, I don't just watch the offensive line and the defensive line. I have to watch the bottom line. To apply for a card, look for this display wherever the card is welcomed. The American Express card! Don't leave home without it! This is a league of A's and B's. It's green and red and gold and black and blue. This is a league with two official languages and many unofficial languages. It's East versus West, wheat versus iron, love versus hate. This is a league where superstars are extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. It's a league of ice, of fog, of mud and wind. And for one Sunday in November, it's the nation's glue. This is a league as diverse as a country, a league of Jacksons, Kwongs, Johnsons, Moscas, O'Shea's, and Haji Razulis. This is his league, his league, her league, their league, and their league. It's my league, and it's your league. This is our league. From the 55-yard line, it's Scott and Greg, and today we are joined by retired New York firefighter, Vietnam veteran, and 9-11 first responder, Billy O'Connor, and television producer, four-time Emmy nominee, Frank Pace, who also worked in public relations back in the 70s with the Southern California Sun, Portland Storm, Chicago Winds, I'm sorry, and the Chicago Winds of the World Football League. Billy and Frank are the co-authors of the new book, Lamar's Gamble, a tale of the AFL-NFL merger and join us both via the internet from Los Angeles. Special thanks, shout out to our mutual friend Upton Bell for his connecting us and allowing us to make your acquaintance and letting us know about your great book. So welcome to Sports History Network, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. And uh, yeah, Scott and I, we both got uh, copies of your book and we read them and we just very, the great thing about football, and football history and football books is doing these podcasts is now I'm allowed to back, you know, not that long ago, you really didn't have people to talk to about this stuff, but with podcasts, now everybody can talk to everybody about their favorite subject. And for Scott and I, we are big football history buffs. Obviously we're Canadian football podcasts too, big CFL buffs, but the AFL 
and the time period that you guys wrote about is for both of us amongst probably one of the more fascinating chapters in professional football history. And if I could start out, where did the genesis of the book come from? I'll let I'll Billy that. That because he was going to, the answer to that's going to be a bar in the Bronx. So Billy can pick up the story from there. Most of my stories always start in the bar of the Bronx. You know, William Patrick Michael <laughs> O'Connor from County Cork Island. It's not too much of a suspension of disbelief to think there might be bars involved with my life. But uh, when I came back from Nam, I was uh, 22. And of course, the 60s, you know, was, uh, and the big jet upset over the Colts was a big deal, you know, because uh, I was a New Yorker in Nam. And uh, when I came back, there was a guy I went to school with, grammar school, actually. His name was uh, Neil Blank. And his uncle was Art Donovan, who played uh, guard on the Colts. And uh, he wrote a book himself, Art Donovan, called Fatso. He did a big tour, all the talk shows. He used to be on Johnny Carson all the time. He was a bit of a character. Anyway, I went to the same grammar school, same high school that Art Donovan went to. So his nephew, Joe Blank, says to me, hey, Billy, how'd you like to meet my Uncle Artie? It's like 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning. I said, what, are you kidding me, Art Donovan? Yeah, of course. I'd love to meet Art Donovan. So I trek the five blocks up to this body idle hour and I walk in and there's maybe three guys in the bar. And Art Donovan is sitting there. We used to get these 15 cent seven ounce drafts in a day. You know, they were like little pills the glasses. And he had his hand around his pill the glass and it looked like a shot glass. I mean, it actually disappeared. And he was ranting. He was saying, are you kidding me? Let me tell you something. He says, something wasn't on the level of that game. He goes, I'm telling you, Rosenblum Rosa gave Eubank our playbook. He goes, no way that we could have lost that game to the Jets. Couldn't happen in a million years. No way. And I was thinking, you know, Jesus, great to see our Donovan. But this is just a cranky old man, you know, sour grapes, you know. And uh, it just put that in my head. And then I started reading, do a little research, and, and not really research, just curious. And I read Bubba Smith wrote a book about how he didn't think the game was on the level, that something was rotten with the game. And then uh, I read a couple of more books, like uh, Bernie Parrish had written a book. I went to the University of Florida in a late age, and Parrish played at the University of Florida, later played for the Cleveland Browns. And he had said that in his book, uh, They Call It a Game, that he had played in at least five games that he knew weren't on the level. There was something wrong with the game. And he said, thanks, that one, a Super Bowl was fixed. And that really got me thinking. And uh, I started doing some more research. I started reading some more books. This guy, Benny Moldea, wrote a book called Interference. And uh, he claims that the book wasn't on the, that the game was on the level. So anyway, that just started the genesis. And you guys are history buffs, and I'm a big history buff. What I like about our book, Lamar's Gamble, it's not a book totally about football. It's really a book about a reflection of, of history through football. As uh, Frank will tell you, like we talk about many times about how the, the heavyweight championships of boxing, if you look at it, it's almost a reflection of history in America. You look at the early champs, Solomon Corbett, Fitzsimmons, all those guys were champs when the Irish were having a hard time of it in America. And then later on, you look at the blacks in America with Joe Lewis and they have champs in them days. And the Italians with Graziano and Marciano. And then onwards right into the Latin Americans of today. And, and you can, you can, sometimes sports can be a window in history. And I like to think our book reflects that. See that? There's about 90 minutes gone right away. <laughs> <laughs> so much, we'll, be, we'll be back next week with another exciting chapter. Of- from the 55-yard line. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, it was nice talking for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> makes our makes our job easy. That's that's for sure. <laughs> well, look, Flyman used to tell me that all the time. Well, I don't kind of say a few thousand syllables. Oh God, I get over here and say a few thousand syllables. <laughs> yeah, I'm a I'm a blab about. Sorry. No, I, when you guys got together and decided to do this book, was it was it always the idea to make it, as you call it, a work of faction, or was there ever a time where you thought, oh, we're just going to go ahead and play it straight and kind of present the history of the of the rivalry? Well, we couldn't actually. We we stayed true to the facts about eighty percent. All the football stuff is fact based. All of the bedroom stuff and the boardroom stuff, we had to invent dialogue because weren't there although once we later found out that upton was there so <laughs> yeah and he might have been a bit one of two <laughs> yeah it's a little bit more credibility so we went from 80 percent facts to 85 80 85 90 percent facts but we just we stayed true to the fact and all of the football related stuff uh we we just you know sort of invented like Spielberg did in Lincoln, the bedroom conversations and the boardroom conversations. Exactly. Gore Vidal, Gore Vidal made a living out of that. You know, when he wrote Lincoln and he wrote Burr, uh, I, I'm always fascinated by the way he writes. I think he's a terrific writer. He wrote history and he wrote dialogue. Obviously, he couldn't be in bed with Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln. But the books that I told you about before that I had read about the history of the AFL and the NFL merger and about the gambling and everything else, started to read like Wikipedia after a while. Right. I don't think our books are like that. It's very entertaining because of the dialogue. And uh, uh, and the dialogue has a purpose. It's leading to, to tell the story, you know, but you don't have to tell the story in a Wikipedia style. You can tell it where it's interesting. I think we did that. And I think the quotes that we did take from the people of that era, and I'm talking, you know, Muhammad Ali, Joe Namath, uh, fascinating people, Cosell, uh, they're they're a matter of public record. We just took the quotes that we thought were entertaining, you know. Well, one thing I, I talked to Greg uh, about earlier this afternoon, we were discussing the book. Is you know, I'm I'm a Jets fan, and I've always enjoyed the history of the you know the Titans of New York and everything. And then when I read the way you guys wrote Harry Wismer, that's exactly as I thought he had been. I mean, when I'm reading that, I could imagine everything that he said in your book was what I could imagine him actually saying in life. I mean, I thought that was just a great characterization of him. Yeah, we tried to stay, we tried to stay true to character. Uh, you know, we, we, we didn't want Carol Rosenblum to say, uh, gosh darn golly, Lamar. Why are, why are you doing this? you, Lamar. Why are you doing this? So we tried to stay true to character. And, you know, it's sort of like, you know, when we – when we say faction, you know, everybody accepts Lin-Manuel Miranda's portrayal of Hamilton. Well, there was nobody in those days that talked hip hop and he wrote a whole musical about that. So uh, I, I think we're, we stayed pretty true to the characters uh, as they would have, as they would have been in reality. Yeah. And you know, when I first, even though it says Lamar's gamble, it's not about Lamar. There's to me, the major character of your book was Carol Rosenblum. And in reading the history of the Colts and reading the history of the NFL, he's ever present during those fifties and the sixties and obviously the seventies up until his death and uh, you know, in the water off, off the coast of LA. 
Florida. Florida. Flor- was it Florida? I'm sorry. Um, no I'm, worries, no worries. It's water either way. Yeah. <laughs> That's a heck of me, a float you, from Florida to L.A., though. That's for sure. Yeah. But the Carol, I mean, Carol Rosenblum and other stuff I've read, I never got a good feel of them. But with your book, I understand, at least I feel now, as I move forward reading other books in football history about the Colts, about the Rams, um, I have more of a feel of who Carol Rosenblum was. And to me, that to me, that was the what the takeaway from the book to get a better feel of who these people were in history and in, in, in sports history. What yeah, that's, was that's interesting that you mentioned that because the first time we wrote the book, again, Billy, I, I never know the difference between antagonists and protagonists. So I want to say the first time we wrote the book. It was, a, it was Carol Rosenblum's book. And then we went through and we rewrote it and we made it Lamar's Gamble because L- Lamar was really a more central character to that merger. And we figured if Lamar could be the antagonist. Protagonist. <laughs> if Lamar could be the protagonist, we could, we could, we could do more with that. And we made uh, Carol Rosenblum a character being 1A and uh, Georgia would be one B. Exactly. Like he became the, the, the antagonist because, uh, he's trying to thwart Lamar at every turn, you know? So, uh, Lamar has his vision. He's got this dream and he's not going to be deterred. Uh, but as far as the characters, you said you got a good feel for Carol Rosenblum. Frank and I probably read about 15 books about the AFL NFL merger. And, uh, most, Ninety percent of what we say in that book has been quoted, requoted, and double checked and rechecked again. So you should get a good uh, feel for Lamar, for Carol, and for Georgia, because uh, and Upton, if anything, when Upton did our podcast, he sort of verified the way we felt about all three guys. And Carol Rosenblum and Lamar Hunt were very complex characters. You don't get to be powerful without being complex. And then also, you know, Harry Wismer. Uh, like you said, Ralph Wilson, uh, Al Davis, Pete Rozelle, all of those are very (coughs) fully formed characters, we feel. uh, And we think you learn a lot about them in this book. Yeah, even with um, the Kennedys. Yeah, well, I'm glad you said that because I think I'm proud of the book. I'm proud of the way we wrote about the merger, but I'm also proud of the way we link it to history because Frank and I have talked about this many times. There's no way that merger could have taken place had it not been for the time that was that was going on in the '60s, the turbulence of the '60s, the contrast between the Giants' locker room. Uh, and I was a big Giant fan when I was a kid. I became a Jet fan in the '60s because of name it, because of the contrast of uh, you know the Giants' locker room with the crew cuts and the ties and the collars, and then of course Namath comes out with the fur the long hair, the music in the jet locker room as opposed to the music in the giant locker room. I mean, just the contrast and the tumultuous times of the Vietnam War and uh, uh, civil rights and, and all that was going on in the 60s. And, we, and we, we give you a window into that period. You don't have to be a history buff to enjoy the historical part of the book. But there is so much great history and even things that, that I'd forgotten about, like uh, mentioning the 1952 NFL Dallas franchise. I'd completely forgotten they, they had that. But, I mean, you know, weaving in how that kind of played into everything with, with Lamar Hunt, I mean, 
it was just so interesting because, yeah, I mean, by the time you're done with the book, you know these guys. I mean, we knew of them before through, you know, as you mentioned, like Wikipedia accounts of, of the leagues. But now you actually knew the person. And, and that's very important, especially for historians, you know, to just to get a grasp of who these people were. Well, this book is so well researched that we couldn't have this book 25 years ago because uh, there was no Internet. So whenever we had a question, Billy or I would just a historical question. We would ask Siri or whoever and three or four or five sites would pop up and they would refer us to other sites. So we really could read a multitude of sources uh, before we made a decision on which way to go with it with the uh, uh, story. Was there any character in particular that was that was the toughest to write? I mean, maybe someone that you just didn't find a lot of information on, so you had to sort of just assume uh, what they were like? Well, I'll, I'll answer that one. I would guess it was Lamar, because Lamar was the least colorful. Lamar was the least colorful, most bland character in the world. Uh, and second would be Ralph Wilson, because Ralph Wilson was the second most, second least colorful, most bland person in the world. And it was easy to write about Al Davis. It was easy to write about Pete Rozelle. Uh, it was easy to write about Michelle. Carol or Art, Rose, or Art Modell or Rooney. Uh, but Lamar, we had, to do deep, we had to do research for, and we had to dig deep to find the, the truth behind the story. And we, I think we did a good job on that. Yeah, I think yeah, when Rosa Bloom asked Tex Stram and he said, uh, what do you know about this guy, Lamar Hunt? And he said, uh, you'd have trouble picking him out of a crowd of three. Pretty much sums <laughs> up. He was a pretty colorless guy, you know. Uh, but not to be underestimated, he had a fierce determination. And uh, his father was the richest man in the world. So that kind of helps. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And that's what, the, the, the you know, reading about him because now you get a feel with your book what you know Hunt Sr. was like because in all the history books I've read never got a feel other than he was a rich oil man but in this one you, you get a feel of him as a human being rather than just some stoic I mean there is uh, there's a lot of human connection with all of the characters in here that you don't get from other books on the time period well that's good that's a great cop being frank that makes me feel real good i think the most important thing of any book when you read the first page is to make you want to read the second page uh it has to be entertaining you know and uh, first and foremost uh, if it's not entertaining who's going to read it i mean you could you could divulge who killed kennedy on the 40th page but if they're not going to get to the fourth page unless the first 39 are good it's that simple i mean it's just too many too many different things plying for your attention, too many different media forms plying for your attention. So in this day and age, in, the, in a day, an age of Twitter and texting and bumper sticker wisdom, you better grab their attention to keep it because you only got one chance. And I'm delighted you guys found that it was entertaining and interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I got, even though I'm a history buff, the history part of it, what to me was, you know, almost kind of, you know, the sports, the sports kind of took a back seat to the history that was being played out on the pages because you got an inside feel of what, what, what the Kennedys were really like. And for, to me, the one character that I knew very little about was, was Georgia. What, 
tell me about her. What was, when you guys were writing Georgia, where did you guys draw the inspiration? I mean, was it press? Was it from friends? Was it from acquaintances? I know you guys are both out in LA. So where did you have, have people, you know, people who knew her to help along and in, in, with the writing process? Well, I think that uh, from our standpoint, Georgia sort of wrote herself. <coughs> uh, we had a, a, a lot of background information on Georgia. Uh, and there were actually two Georgias. There was a Georgia from the age of 21 to 29 where she was married five times. And there was a Georgia who became secure after she, after Carol divorced his wife and married Georgia. And she, she became more legitimate after that. Uh, I think Georgia was, uh, Carol was Georgia's sixth husband. And by that time she knew she had gotten it right with Carol. Uh, but I think the groundwork was laid in her early years when she was a bit of a girl to, to say it nicely. And uh, that sort of colored her life uh, and her, as, as, as it got older. She never, she never, I think in her mind, she never really escaped her upbringing. Yeah, she had a very insecure childhood as you read in the book. And uh, I mean, she rose to become the most powerful woman in football. Uh, that was a hell of an extent. And it doesn't, it doesn't really matter how you got there. She got there. Uh, and you know, there was, she was a butt of a lot of jokes. There was bumper stickers in LA for a long time. You know, honk if you've been married to Georgia, uh, which, you know, it was, uh, it was a determined woman. And uh, again, like, like Lamar, I don't think you can become a powerful person unless you're determined and relentless. And she was willing to do whatever it took. And I hope the book showed that. Well, it absolutely did. You know, one thing that, um, was really interesting to me, and you guys touched on it a couple of minutes ago. You have Lamar Hunt, who's a boring guy, and yet he's spearheading the renegade league that's going against the establishment. And the whole time I'm reading that, I'm thinking, wow, does he even know what he's doing here? Obviously he did because it worked, but, but it is kind of funny to have a, a guy like that, you know, a little sort of nebbish kind of person who's, who's running the show, basically. Yeah, and... and his best friend was Bud Adams and Bud was a brash full of shit guy and he would stick it in anybody's face. So he did, you know, he did a lot of uh, Lamar's dirty work uh, on behalf of the, the duo. Yeah. He was the total opposite. He was an ostentatious character, a larger life, uh, even by the way he dressed, the way he acted, the money he had, of course he was in the oil business as well. But Lamar, I, I, it was a, famous show back in the 50s, early television called Mr. Peepers. And the head of Mr. The star of Mr. Peepers was Wally Cox. And he was a Don Knights type character, very timid, uh, glasses, nerdy. and many people compared Lamar to Wally Cox, you know. He was underdog. Hey, let me ask you a question. Uh, we've talked about the book a lot. Do you have any idea where you can find it? Uh, maybe a, a Mick, a move, and a bike? <laughs> well, that's, you know, I... <laughs> Well, you know, I apologize. I did not mention your podcast and your YouTube show when we started off. Um, you guys, you know, we'll kind of we'll set the book aside here. Well, let's talk about your podcast. You guys, how long have you been doing the podcast and the show? A year this week. Awesome. This is, happy happy anniversary. anniversary there, happy anniversary. Yeah, happy anniversary to you, too. I'm glad you're away because you probably kissed me. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's 
this week is uh, today was actually the first episode of the new season. We've got uh, uh, Wendy uh, Selig Preeb, who was the CEO of the Milwaukee Brewers, first uh, CEO in Major League Baseball, and her husband Laurel Preeb, uh, uh, a longtime Major League Baseball executive, on the podcast. And our, our website for the podcast is www.amick, M-I-C-K, a MOOC, M-O-O-K, and a Mike, M-I-C.com. And uh, you can see all 52 of podcasts right there. And on upcoming weeks, we've got uh, Rob Nelson coming on from Big League Chew. We've got Leslie Visser coming on from the NFL and, and Major League Baseball. Uh, we've got a mixed martial arts expert on the way. Uh, we've got Adrian Barbeau upcoming. Oh, really? So, oh, yeah, so there we, we go. Got, <laughs> oh, yeah. The like, fog. Guests. And oh. Richie, Richie, Richie Picciotti. Richie Picciotto from, uh, he wrote a book called Last Man Down. He was uh, one of the survivors of 9-11. He was inside the building when the building collapsed around him. Uh, but we've been very fortunate with our guests. And I always break Frank's chops because that's what we do. You know, we're Yorkers and uh, originally, and I always call him Frankie the Juice because he, he's had, we've had some great guests. We've had Artis Gilmore on. Uh, Chicago Bull. Yeah, terrific. And uh, Tony O, who's uh, Frank Sinatra's road manager. We're going to have him on again. Uh, Stephen Lang, the actor, uh, Avatar, Cowboy Joe West, Cowboy Joe West. We just had some, I, I've been, it's a real kick for me because most of these are friends of Frank's, and uh, I'm just a broken down old fireman. What do I know? But uh, I'm getting to meet a lot of really fascinating people, you know, from uh, Pulitzer Prize winning columnists. Uh, it's just a real kick for me, you know, really. I'm having a lot of fun doing this. Well, that's, you know, that's, and that's why Scott and I started our, the podcast here because, you know, being able to talk to people. The great thing about living in the 21st century is the internet has allowed us literally to connect with everybody. For all the bad it's done in the recent years, I think we yeah. can all agree, the one thing it allows us all to do is really connect. And when you, you know, the great thing about sports and entertainment is it cuts through all the politics. It cuts through all the divisiveness and is what have you guys found the most rewarding with, with doing the podcast? Well, I already answered my part. Oh yeah, you did. <laughs> I did. I just meeting all these wonderful, fascinating people, you know, and I'll let Frank take it from there. I think even though I'm still working uh, at Warner brothers, I think that allows me to keep my mind active. Uh, I keep learning new things and Billy, are you, Blowing smoke? I've been Literally. blowing smoke all my life, pal. <laughs> <laughs> all my life. It's got me this far. <laughs> you're vaping. You're vaping as we're speaking. <laughs> you're uh, allows me to keep involved in in the things that I in, in, in really inspire me. Uh, and again, I'm sort of reliving my life and introducing my life to Billy. And because Billy and I never really wanted to do a podcast. We were just two guys writing a book together. And our third guy in the booth, Derek Harris, who's, whose daughter coached in soccer, said, why don't you do a podcast? Uh, I said, well, I, I never done a podcast. But, you know, he, I said, well, you guys, you and Billy would be great. And then I sort of flashed upon Gracie Allen and George Burns. And I, I figured I could, be, I could be George Burns and say, 
Tell me about Uncle Charlie, Gracie. He says he talked about 39 years. I figured I could get through that. I said, I said, okay, but just uh, I, I really don't want to do anything other than uh, be a host. So Derek, you have to do everything else. So the end credits have Derek listed at 25 times uh, in, every, in every category. Because really without Derek, uh, well, we, we, I say we couldn't, we couldn't have done this. But with, this was such a great partnership. Uh, without any of the three, it wouldn't survive. Right. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of how Scott and I, Scott and I are. I mean, we both work in the controls in the background, you know, from setting up the interviews to, you know, I, you know, well, only one of us can hit the, hit the click the record button and that's myself. But, but you with, know, it, it, oh, there's an old adage. They say, if you and your partner agree on everything, if you and your partner have the same talents, then what right. is unnecessary? And the great thing is, you know, Scott and I, we split the profits 50, 50, Fifty percent of zero is zero. Like Billy and myself. Oh yeah. I that we we don't split split the expenses. We split the profits. Right. Right. Good thing we don't split the expenses. And uh, and you know, in terms of with sports and everything, um, are you guys both um, now, Billy? You're you still a Giants or a Jets fan? Where are you at? You know what? I, I'm one of the few guys that are both Giants and Jet fans. If okay. you live in New York, if you're a Giant fan, usually you hate the Jets and vice versa. Like being uh, in Chicago fan, with the Cubs and Sox. Yeah, yeah. An Islander fan, you hate the Rangers, you know. But I kind of like, you know, I, I root for the Jets still, you know. But uh, the first game I ever went to, I was about nine years old. And a friend of mine's father, kid I went to grammar school with, his father owned the butcher shop and he had season tickets to the Giants. And he took me to Bobby Lane and Charlie Charlie Conley's last game at the Yankee Stadium. Oh, and, wow. Uh, the quarterback was Bobby Lane on, on for the Steelers. And, uh, you know, I was nine, eight, nine years old, and that memory will always stick with me, you know, so I'll always be a Giant fan in some respect. But, uh, but again, when the Jets came into town, uh, uh, I became a Jet fan. I performed, you know, to make it. And uh, I ended up at the bar in Queens, uh, not too far from Shea Stadium. I opened up uh, 1979, a big joint in Queens, not too far from Shea. So I became a Met fan as well. And I was never a Yankee fan because growing up in the Bronx, maybe less than a, less than two miles from Yankee Stadium, all my friends were Yankee fans. And I was a Giant fan because Willie Mays and the Giants were still in New York when I was a kid. And uh, so they used to break my chops mercilessly. You know, mercilessly, mercilessly, mercilessly. They used to break my chops. And uh, <laughs> consequently, I, you know, I hated the Yankees when I was a kid. I just hated the Yankees. And yet we had on our podcast, we had the, the ultimate Roger Maris. Uh, Andy Strasburg. Andy Strasburg. Yep. Andy Strasburg. And I got to, Frank gave me a kick because he got to put up the picture uh, that I was three rows behind the guy who caught uh, Roger Maris' 61st home run when I was 12 oh. years old. And yep. uh, this guy was flat because he's a Roger Maris uh, aficionado, you know, and uh, here Frank splashes the picture. By the way, there was one guy in the stadium that day you might recognize. And uh, so, I mean, I've always been a sports nut. Yeah. Yeah, well, life, I, may, I also may add that Billy wrote one book without me. It was Confessions of a Bronx Bookie because he was an illegal bookmaker in New York. So... <laughs> Uh, he's he's uh, his fandom only goes so far. 
<laughs> whether he won or lost the, the bet that day. Yeah. I, be, I uh, became a green fan, a green fan, real quick, and I don't mean the Jets either. I mean green. Well, you know, uh, and, and, and I'm glad, and I'm glad you brought, and Frank, I'm glad you brought that up because, in, in with your book, there's that gambling plays a huge, uh, gambling is kind of the main theme throughout the book. You think? Yeah. You think? Yeah, and uh, like, uh, you know, I'll be honest with you. For me, I mean, you know, nowadays we live in a world where everything's legal. I mean, the, the Cardinals, you know, they've got their opening, you know, they're going to be the first team to actually allow actual betting in the stadium. But back in the sixties, back in the fifties and sixties, gambling was a four letter word in sports. And so with Rosenblum, what he was a gambler, we all know that. So how much do we know? How much do we don't know? How much don't we know about him as a gambler? Well, it's more than just him. And I'll really go okay. on and tell about all of the other owners and their involvement in gambling. Go ahead, Billy. Yeah, well, actually, you know, think about it. In the 50s, when the NFL was, was started, there was no money in the NFL. And, you know, NFL wasn't really a big deal in the 50s. When I was a kid growing up, baseball was the number one sport. That was it. Second was boxing. Everybody knew what heavyweight was. Everybody knew what lightweight champ was, middleweight champ, light heavyweight champ. Boxing was then maybe college football. NFL was a poor fourth, maybe. So anybody getting into the NFL had to be more than an entrepreneur. Number one, they had to be, they had to have deep pockets. But number two, they had to be a gambler. And uh, if you look at Art Rooney owns racetracks, and uh, there's many stories about him actually hitting a six-horse parlay and rotating from one, just dumping the money from one race to another, hit six in a row, and that's how he bought the Steelers. Uh, all of them, Modell, huge gambler, with connections that were a little, you know, like as they say in the old neighborhood, a little fugazi. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they all had a lot of fugazi uh, connections, and a lot of that money was cleaned up. Uh, I always remember a great line that Pacino said in The Godfather. When he was talking to one of the family, he said, we're, we're cleaning up the business. We're going into more legitimate businesses now. You know, we're, we're cleaning up the money. And what more legitimate business to go into than one they already knew about? If they were bookmakers or if they were gamblers, and a lot of them owned tote machines and slot machines, what more legitimate business to go into that they would know about than professional football? Yeah, Rudy, Rudy, owned a, Rudy owned a Steelers and he owned a racetrack. Uh, well, uh, Tim Mara was a big gambler. Uh, they're all well-known. Odell, yeah. They, and even, even the Bidwells out here in Chicago had the racetracks. Yep. Yeah, yeah. They were all gamblers. That, that's what gets me. I mean, Pete Rose is in the Hall of Fame right now because, you know, he, they found out he was gambling on baseball. Now, he swears he never bet on the Reds. Maybe he's telling the truth. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. But as a, you know, as a gambler, as a compulsive gambler, which I was before I became a bookmaker, because that's what drove me to bookmaking. I was just tired of paying my paycheck over, signing it over every week to bookies, because I do a lot of bookies. And I was paying them all. I said, you know what? I'm going to get on the right side of this. But if if he didn't bet on Cincinnati, I'd be surprised. I mean, if I had inside information and I was a gambler, I'd use it. Now, as we point out in the book, Roselle come down hard, came down hard. On the players that gamble, he came down hard on uh, Harris and Rose and Hornig. 
yeah, Horning and, uh, and, and, and Alex Karras. But it's very difficult for a commissioner to come down hard on his boss. You know, uh, if it's the guy paying your paycheck and he's crooked or he's gambling, you blow the whistle on him because you lose your platform. That's it. You're done. You're out. You're out. You're out you're, you don't have the job no more. So we well, don't just. Well, Bert Bell uh, uh, often told us Bert Bell used to have a phone in his house on Sundays that would ring any time the, the line went a little sideways on a game, which would tip him off that the game might have been fixed. Oh, wow. I and did not know that. Oh, man. Yeah, that's such uh, another thing. How in the world, uh, why in the world, do they have lines in the, in the paper anyway? They show you the lines. They show you the injury reports. They show you the field conditions. Who is that to have any interest to other than a gambler? And like you said, in, in my day, when I was bookmaking, you know, we, we went to some lengths to stay clandestine. I mean, we had to, we put forward phones, like come Super Bowl, we, we rented a separate apartment and just put three dummy phones in, in the apartment we used all year and had them forwarded to the apartment across the hallway just in case we got busted. That's how scary it was. We didn't want to get busted. But now they advertise at halftime. I mean, you, you got sports betting sites advertising. Frank, am I wrong? They even have a commissioner now in charge of gamble. NFL this year and instituted a director of legitimate yeah. gaming. Yeah. Gaming. Gaming. Yeah. And now, and now, and now Las Vegas has a pro team. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, and even the C, you know, the CFL just opened up single game betting. And it's, it's been interesting to hear the CF, people in the CFL talk about how gambling is going to save the league. Now, I've, uh, to me, and Scott and I have had this conversation. I've never seen the numbers how gambling is going to save a nine-team league, but with the NFL, it's completely different. I mean, you've got DraftKings, which is yeah. you know, and I and I'll tell you what, you know, every day I play fantasy daily fantasy. I don't I don't put five dollars on fantasy football. I put five dollars in, in in the stock of the company because you, you know, know it's gonna grow. you know it's going to grow you know well, it's going to grow they? i mean they're seeding right. that's exactly only, what they're doing it's, it's only going to grow if billy does not invest in it <laughs> <laughs> so you know if i bought a cemetery people would stop dying <laughs> <laughs> and it's so in reading the book and scott's probably the same way it's like you know, you're reading it, just everything that happened, and then looking in the 21st in 2021 and looking up and going, Oh, there's another ad for DraftKings. It's like we've come such a long way. And FanDuel. Yeah. Well, HL Hunt, HL Hunt says to Lamar in the book, he says, if this league is going to succeed, it's going to be because of gambling, not in right, spite right. of gambling. I mean, yeah, right now with this fantasies, football and everything, they're seeding, you know, kids for the future to gamble. And to get involved in football, I mean, you know, it's like it's like a it's like a heroin a salesman going up to a kid in the street. Hey, the first one's for free. Don't worry about it. This one's on me. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. they're seeding. You know, these kids are they're going to play with fantasy football later on. You know, we used to have these football tickets. The kids would bet a dollar or two dollars on, and they give them ten to one on it. You know, the bookies used to hand out to their runners, right? And uh, right. that's all seeding. You know, get them involved. Get them, get them watching football. And I'm sure Carol Rosenblum is rolling over his grave somewhere, just looking down and going, what the hell? You know? <laughs> yeah. 
Why couldn't I be getting a piece of this? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look at the outrage over Neyman. $400,000 for four years in a Cadillac. The outrage. Nobody's worth that kind of money. Nobody. Right. Now, look well, at the Carol, money. Carol foresaw all this coming. Yeah. 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 Without well, a doubt. Carol was a visionary. He, for everything you can say about him, you have to say he was a visionary and he saw everything coming. Well, and just he on the television pay- part alone. Yeah, I was just going to yeah. say, pay TV, he saw it coming. He saw every aspect of it coming. He was a visionary, for sure. He was a genius in a lot of ways. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Well, I know I worked in the newspaper business 30 years. I was a sports editor. And, of course, every Saturday, there would be a betting line for college football in the NFL. And Friday night, invariably, you get a bunch of calls from you know people asking what the lines were or whatever. And I used to always laugh because I uh, I was based in Birmingham, Alabama. That's where I'm from. And of course, gambling publicly was a big no-no. But I'm thinking it's a big no-no, and yet every newspaper in the United States is running a gambling line yeah. every day. You know? <laughs> so there's there's something that doesn't quite match up there. Yeah, and they did it on. And they, if you remember back in the NFL today, back in the '70s. Jimmy the Greek on. Jimmy the Greek. Snyder. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm going to ask you, if you were in Birmingham for 30 years, you must know my good friend, Art Clarkson. Oh, God, I loved Art. Yeah, rest his soul. He was, uh, he was a great guy. We got to be pretty good friends there for a while. It was after he'd sold his interest in the, uh, in the Birmingham Bulls. But he was a, a super, super guy. And a, a great salesman because he had a, he had a gift of gab. We worked together in the Southern California sun. And he was a second <laughs> season ticket holder. And then the second year, uh, he was, he went to Chicago and that's how I got the job in Chicago. He asked me to come to Chicago to work <laughs> with him with the women. Uh, and, uh, Art was a, a terrific fellow. Just, a, Oh, he was, you know, guy. he, he, he's the one that brought minor league baseball back to Birmingham. And then he, uh, after the WHA hockey team folded, he brought ECHL hockey to Birmingham. And he, when he promoted it, he said it was a combination of uh, NASCAR and a street fight. And that's how he promoted the game. And he put a lot of people in the seats for, you know, basically double A hockey. Yep. And also when he, when he owned the Barons, he was, he was the owner when Michael Jordan played baseball with him. And he also owned a baseball card company. And he said, if I ever need more money, all I'll do is crack out, crank out more Michael Jordan baseball cards and sell them because the hottest things going. And uh, he really, he was really another guy who was ahead of his time. I miss him greatly. Yeah, I do too. He was just, uh, sometimes during the summer when it would be slow, he would just call me when I was at work and we'd talk for two hours. And it was completely lose track of time just, Talking about the old WFL days and, you know, owning the Barons and, and hockey. But, yeah, he, he was a visionary, and he did so much for the city of Birmingham and really every city he, he worked in. Yep, yep. Right, tell, tell the guys again where they can get that book. Will you, Lamar's Gamble? Give them the three websites. We only gave them the one about a make a mook and a mic. They can get it on a claim, <laughs> right? Make a mook and a mic.com, Amazonpress.com. And Amazon, uh, not, I mean, Acclaim Press, A-C-C-L-A-I-M-E Press.com and Amazon, of course. All three. And uh, you guys have, I mean, you, this is not your your only book. You guys have another book out, too. Um, tell us about that one. Well, what did Frank tell you about that? It's called If These Lips Could Talk. And it's loosely, well, it's based on my career in show business. I've done 
700 shows, uh, produced four movies. And I got the name from a good friend of mine, Marty Nedboy, who would also say, if I ever do a biography, I'm going to call it if these talk. So I stole the title from him. And uh, it's basically recollections of my life and career with people like Brooke Shields, uh, people like Candace Bergen, uh, people like John Wayne, Frank Sinatra, Don Rickles. Uh, it's it's a really, really, really fun book, I think. Stallone, I think it's a fun book. And I, I try to give some insight into how much luck it takes, how to survive in the business, uh, how other people make their way in the business on the crew. Uh, I, I think I'm, I, Billy and I are pretty proud of, pr pretty proud of that book. And uh, when you mentioned Rickles, I smiled because like every other night, I usually need a laugh. I have my day job, I, I'm a court officer, so I deal with a lot of bad news. But you know, nothing, nothing cheers me up than turning on the YouTube, turning on YouTube, and I'm like, hmm, let's do Rickles Carson. And so, um, was what was Rickles? What was Rickles like? Was he as genuine and as sweet and nice as he is? I've I've been told. I think that Don Rickles. Uh, was probably the nicest man I ever met. Uh, Don and I really became close friends. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we would go on vacations. Don and Barbara, my wife Karen and I would go on vacations with Don and Barbara. Well, vacations for, for me and Karen, when Don was working in Montreal, we went up to Montreal. When Don was working in Chicago, we went to Chicago. We would go down on Rush Street uh, after the show for dinner. And there was always an old Irish cop that would come by the table and walked on back to the hotel <laughs> to keep all the uh, all of his fans away. And uh, I just I've got such fond recollections of Don. Uh, Tony O, who was Frank Sinatra's road manager, also took over Don's career after Frank passed. And uh, we've stayed very close with Tony O. And like Billy said, he'll come on the podcast again at the end of September. But, you know, Don was, was a great guy. I mean, he was kind. He was generous. We went to his 70th birthday party. We went to every birthday party for five years. We went to his daughter's wedding. Uh, and we're, we're just very honored that Don chose uh, Karen and myself uh, to be amongst his close circle of friends. Don would always say for two guys to get along, really be friends, their wife has to get along famously. And Karen and Barbara got along famously. That's a real good chapter, I think, and if these lips could talk because of Frank's close association with Don, the Rickles chapter is not only funny, it's insightful and it's uh, poignant. Uh, it's a, it, it was a fun book to help Frank write. It was just uh, because of the, what was at stake? You know, the people that were in his uh, immediate, uh, entourage, you know, people that he that he that he hung out with. Yeah, and uh, we don't pull any punches because we, you know, we take some shots of people that deserve having shots taken. Take yeah. them out. I tell I tell real stories in a real way. Uh, Billy and I don't. Uh, we don't pull any punches when we have punches to throw. And uh, <laughs> you know, my father was a huge John Wayne fan. What was he like? <laughs> well, my father was a huge John Wayne type too. Uh, fan and uh, you'll have to read this okay book. yeah no i, I... Read the book. <laughs> good thing about the book is it's such an easy read because every chapter is self-contained 
It's about a celebrity, but it has a beginning, a good lead. You, know, you were in the in, in, in the columnist business. You were in a, uh, Scott, you were a, an editor. So every chapter of the book has a good lead and a good kicker. And uh, so it's an easy read, you know, maybe eight pages of everybody in, in Frank's uh, field, you know, the people that we're talking about. It's, 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 it's a good, fast read, good summer read, I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely going to order it. I mean, it just, it, it sounds fascinating. It's kind of funny too, because stories like these, some of them, I'm sure after you read it, they're going to be stories that you didn't want to hear, you know, if you like yeah. the person and, and find out they weren't really who you thought they were. Well, well, there's some of that in there for sure. If you're a Kathy Griffin fan, don't read the book. Uh, <laughs> hey, Kathy, um, Oak Park's very own. Yeah, that's why I'm saying. Yeah, and uh, actually, funny you should mention her. It was, it's been years and years ago. My wife and I were downtown Chicago, where we both work, and we were out actually um, over by the mall. And my wife's being Japanese, but you know, she, she recognized Kathy Griffin. Let's go say hi to her. I go, no, <laughs> let's leave her be, leave her be. <laughs> and she was just shopping. It was just, it's funny. You should mention, mention her. Cause it's like, yeah, it's like somebody, hey, it's, yeah, she's remote park. No big, you know, friends of friends know, you know, who Kathy Griffin is still around here. Um, Billy, and in, we're approaching here and I, and we're going to segue. We're approaching 20 years of nine 11. Yeah. And I know you were there on the day it happened. And, you know, for me, I was in D.C. on 9-11, saw the aftermath of the Pentagon, and I know you were a first responder. Um, with everything that's been going on, especially the last four years in the last year, you know, people, I have this conversation, it, the closer we get, you know, talking about sports, com, you know, where sports and real and history collide. And I know with 9-11, the NFL, they canceled everything. And they, but for you as, as a first responder, is, is with 9-11 coming up um, and after everything you've seen and everything you've been through also in Vietnam, how do you, at times with everything that's going on, is, for you, is it like, is sports for you like it is with me? Because I spent a year in Iraq. And so for me, sports has always been kind of the one thing that, I turn to, to know it's going to bring us all together and at least going to put a smile on our face for a few hours. You know, obviously 9-11 was absolutely horrific. I mean, uh, the year I spent in Nam was one thing and I had probably a different experience than most had in Nam because I wasn't a combat officer. Uh, I was in the air force. and uh, I saw my share of coffins getting loaded on C-130s, but uh, I just wasn't a ground pounder to this day. I, you know, uh, Whenever I see a Marine or a ground pounder, I bow my head in reverence because right. I understand right. what they went through over there. 9-11 uh, was an absolutely horrific day. And, and firemen are a lot military guys. And I guess a lot like locker room guys in sports is that uh, we have this tight connection. You know, the brothers. We call each other the brothers for a reason. I mean, you live, sleep, and eat with each other. And uh, you depend on each other to cover each other's back. So consequently when anything happens to any of the brothers it's it's it, it weighs heavy on all of us so uh like i said it was a terrible terrible day but as you said how sports bring us together it's interesting to me working at the dig and let me just correct you i wasn't there when the buildings collapsed i had already retired but i went up there two days after of course because 
everybody went to the dig. You know, you know, uh, I knew guys that died. They were friends of mine. And uh, some friends of mine, their sons were buried uh, in that rubble. And uh, the one thing about that dig was the way it brought the country together, you know, left, right, right Democrat, Republican. Everybody was there. Everybody wanted to help. Guys from Canada, firemen from Canada, firemen from all over the country came up there to help. You know, uh, I saw dowagers. I saw people with, you know, uh, with mink coats on making sandwiches and handing it out to iron workers. Uh, the iron workers' contribution to the to the dig is is immeasurable. We couldn't do nothing without those guys. And they 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 didn't accolades or they walked off jobs that they were getting paid for to go down there and cut metal at the dig, you know? Uh, so as horrific as it was, and, and of course it always weighs heavy on us. Like I said, we firemen, we hang out together. I've been to, we go to golf outings, we go to trips, we go hang gliding, any kind of thing that you can think of skiing. We do it together. And <coughs> excuse me. Frank and I collaborated on our next book, which is about 9-11. Well, at least the final four chapters are about 9-11 anyway, called Combustible. And uh, in doing research for that book, when I was together with these guys, I'd always say to them, look, man, I know you were there. I know you were at 9-11. I know you were there. I don't want to know what you remember about 9-11. Tell me one thing that you absolutely cannot forget. And this is 20 years later. And, and, you know, guys 70, 65 years old put their hands, their arms in their hands and just start weeping yeah. and yeah. look up at me and say, Billy, the smells, the smells. I can't forget the smells because we have a, a euphemism, department, especially in the busy houses, because we come across a lot of victims in the busy houses, you know, uh, I always worked in the South Bronx and Harlem, and that's where the guys are that like the juice. They like the action. And we'd come across a burnt, a burnt body, and you don't call a body a burnt body because I don't know if you've ever felt burnt flesh, but it's very difficult to believe that man is the highest order of things when you do. It's, it's a smell that never leaves you. It's, it's a disgusting smell, burnt flesh. So we call them roasts. We use a move. I got a roast. I got two roasts. And uh, that euphemism... Uh, applies well down there at the dig every fireman there has probably smelt the roast but what we were smelling down there was flesh that had been rotting for 10 12 days 13 days and covered up and it was almost like spoiled chicken you know you knew when you spread some of the rubble that you had something there because you but just jump back and I, and reflexively I mean, it wasn't like you did it because you smelled it you're just like whoa and you knew that you had a body or a piece of a body. So, uh, yeah, that day is going to be uh, yeah. be with me for a long, long time. And anybody who was down there is going to be with them for a long, long time. And, and I really, of the book we wrote, the next book we wrote, Combustible, we're both proud of those last five chapters because uh, I often think that, you know, I didn't want to, dishonored the brothers and I certainly didn't want to write it. I wanted to write about it as somebody who was there. Yeah. And uh, I think we accomplished that. And uh, so I'm really proud of those five chapters. Hmm. I, can't, I, I can't wait to read it. When, uh, 
when's the book coming out? Let me give that to Frank. Frank, you're muting. Uh, it's going to be roughly the first of September. Oh, okay. So perfect, perfect timing then. Yep. So we're yeah. going to be we're going to be busy promoting two books at the same time. But Lamar's Gamble, uh, we can promote all the way through the Super Bowl because I believe this. Well, I, I know the Super Bowl is in Los Angeles this week, so I think we're going to be really busy on Radio Row promoting the book uh, during Super Bowl week for sure. So that, that's got a really long shelf life. Yeah. Has yeah, anybody has has anybody from the NFL reached out to you about the book? Uh, not yet. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> we got the Warriors ready. I'm hoping they don't. Uh, I'm hoping they don't. But you know what? Let me ask you: Has Dan Patrick reached out to you yet? No, he hasn't. Um, and uh, you know, I I represent artist Gilmore. Yeah. And I, I represent Rod Carew for forty years. So I've got some credibility with those guys, but I'm going to go after them sooner or later. Uh, yeah, because I, you know, I mean, I, I watch Dan Patrick every, you know, he's usually my morning, especially now that, you know, the election's over. I mean, we're kind of in a calm period before the next election. So getting back to sports and laughing and everything, but I was, you know, I watch Dan Patrick pretty much every morning, but I would, I would think he would want you to come and talk about the book on the show because well, you should call in Dan Patrick and say, you know, Dan, there's really two guys that you should interview. I tell you what, I'm going to make sure I tag him on the podcast for this one and see if maybe McLovin or one of the other guys picks up on it. Well, I've got, I've got his phone number. I've got McLovin's phone number. So maybe <laughs> drop him a note. And, uh, you know, and Rich- getting back, getting back to Parby. I got Rich Eisen's phone number too. Oh, I love watching him too. I, I don't mean to go all fanboy on some of these guys, but it's, you know, I work, I said, I've been sitting in my house for the last 18 months writing reports. <laughs> so guys like Dan Patrick, you know, the podcast, uh, Rich Eisen have kind of helped me keep my sanity in some of those days, especially the winter months around here. <laughs> winter months around there. I'm very familiar with the winter months around there. Oh yeah. How long were you in Chicago when you were with the winds? four months oh okay from the, oh that's from the, right you were with the winds not the fire that, that, that was the second season was, of the year. i was with the winds not the fire okay yeah. so i think i was hired in uh april and we folded in september so oh, april, wow april, july and i i would say that i went to interview with the cubs uh for a pr job and i interviewed with salty well who was the general manager of the cubs at the time and the day I went, Randy Stennett went seven for seven, setting the major league record wow. for most hits uh, in, a, in, a, in a game. And uh, it, I, I, that, it was that time that I decided I would get out of the sports business. But, and, you know, just your experience with the, the World Football League. I mean, and, and, and Scott, you could probably, you probably got more questions on this because I hate saying this. I'm a little too young to really remember the World Football League by a couple of years, but what was that like? And uh, that, and how long, wait, for my first, let me go back. First question, how long were, were you with the World Football League and what was that experience like for you? Well, I was with the World Football League for two years, almost two, almost since the, from the inception, almost to the time it folded. Uh, the wins were dropped out of the league halfway through the second season. And that was when I terminated relationship with the wins but through that 
I met Stu Barber, who is a, uh, an offensive line coach, uh, who was a, excuse me, who was a great offensive lineman with the Buffalo Bills, who became general manager of the Buffalo Bills. And he introduced me to one of his friends, Steve Asian, who became my godfather at Warner Brothers. Uh, so without the World Football League, I probably wouldn't have this career. Oh, wow. I, I was on the field the day Marty Schottenheimer became a coach because Marty was trying to make it as a linebacker. And uh, he went to Dick Corey, our coach, after lunch. And he said, Co he said, Coach, I'm through. He said, I don't have it anymore. He said, well, come back after lunch and you're going to be my linebacker coach. <laughs> so that's the day Marty became a uh, coach. Wow. Become the seventh winningest coach in NFL history. Well, I was there for opening night of the World Football League when the Birmingham Americans hosted Southern California. I, I was 13 years old. And, of course, that was thrilling for me being a kid in Birmingham to have my own professional football team. But the one thing, Greg knows this, those magenta and orange uniforms were the greatest things I have ever seen <laughs> since. God, I love those things. I have a Southern Cal, it's a replica, but I even have one of their uh, magenta jerseys that I proudly display on occasion. I'll tell you a quick Birmingham story. I was a PR director for, this, uh, for the wins. And uh, after two exhibition games, Babe Perilli, our head coach, was fired. And he was replaced by Abe Gibran as our head coach. Yep. And we were going down for opening day of the 75 season. And uh, we were, they had the coin flip and they, they asked me, well, which team do you want to introduce? I said, well, I'll leave it up to the host. He said, well, we want to introduce our offense because we, we just signed Johnny Musso and we want to introduce, we want him to get a big, it's going to be a big hurrah in Alabama because he was a big Al University of Alabama star running back. So I went and told Abe and I said, uh, I, we're going to introduce our defense, they're going to introduce their offense. And he said, I don't want to introduce their offense. I want to introduce, I, I, I don't want to introduce our defense. I want to introduce our offense. I said, it's too late. That ship has sailed. He said, I want to introduce our offense. And I said, you can run anybody out on you on the field, but they're going to call the defense's name. So, <laughs> <laughs> so from this point on, Abe and I never really got along very well. <laughs> well, I didn't know John Gilliam was a defensive tackle. That's different. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Hey, I've never been to Chicago. I got to ask you all a question. I, uh, I can tell you, like I said before, firemen, you know, we get together in groups and we, out of my company we used to run a bus trip to all ballparks, you know, uh, or go to Fenway, go to Baltimore. Yeah. And to a man, they all loved Wrigley the most of any other field they were at. They all loved Wrigley field. They said it was the best ballpark to see a game, the best ballpark to be at. But my question is about Chicago. Frank, is there pizza really better than us? Can it be better than New York pizza? No, it's not. And as um, <laughs> it's also about Wrigley, the whole, under the stadium smells like piss. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah it smells like stadium. New Orleans. It yeah. smells like New Orleans. Yeah. <laughs> every That's place, you go, every place you go in that stadium smells like piss. I'm it's sorry. it's you know with Wrigley. Um, and I've only been to about five baseball stadiums. I've never been out east to Fenway or to Yankee or any of them. But for me, and I went there, my wife and I went there right after the Cubs won the World Series. So we went there the following April. 
And it was one of those days that felt like autumn. Beautiful day, sun's out, sweatshirt weather, and we're in an empty stadium because getting a full tour. And it literally, it was a awe-inspiring moment just being a sports fan because you're in the empty stadium and you're looking down and you're just thinking about all the people that played on there from, you know, starting, we'll, we'll start with Babe Ruth and work our way through. And then we went to the lot, the visitor's locker room, which has really not changed. I mean, there's, you know, they, it's still the same one, or at least it was back then that they'd been using for decades. And I'm sitting there and my wife's like, what's wrong? I go, I can hear ghosts. And I could hear Lombardi. I could hear Unitas. I could hear all those guys in there. And then you're looking around going, holy crap, this is a small locker room. How did they fit everybody in here? So um, when, when you if you make it out here, you've got to make that part of your, your trip is to Wrigley. Yeah, because when I, when I was there, uh, you know, I produced a movie in 1991 called Babe Ruth uh, and starred Stephen Lang as the babe. And... Uh, I, I was in Chicago and the first thing I thought of was the called shot. Yeah. And there was some controversy about the called shot and TV guide asked me, well, what do you think about the controversy about the called shot? And I said, the movie's called Babe Ruth. He <laughs> <laughs> called the shot. When we do the Charlie Root story, he won't have called the shot. But uh, yeah. that's, you know, American folklore. Uh, yeah, you know what? You don't want to change American folklore. No, and you know what? And there's actually been video. Isn't there video, like possibly of him calling the shot? I mean, I always when I talk here about it, he's yeah. sort of he, he's sort of waving towards center field, but I don't really know whether he called the shot or not. I I always you know like you though it's like you know what? Yeah, he called the shot. He certainly embraced the story after the fact. Right. He, he said he'd called a shot when it became a, a story. He yeah. Saw it a story, and then he embraced it for sure. Yeah. Well, and you know, Muhammad Ali wasn't always rounds either, but he, but he was close. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, yeah, no, you'd love it. And talking about pizza, just doing the pizza route, I agree with you, Frank. The two pizzas. Well, let's put it this way: I wouldn't say one's better than the other. It's like comparing apples to oranges. If you want a pizza casserole, then you go with Chicago deep dish. Gotcha. You know, and it's just, uh, you know, because if you order deep dish pizza around here, you better have an hour to kill before it even gets to your table. What I like about New York pizzas, after you fold it, you pick it up. If everything slides off, I know I got good pizza. <laughs> yeah. Everything in the plate just slides you're gonna, off. You're not going to get that with Chicago. No. It's pizza. No, but you you know, it's like anything else. As long as you got leftovers to bring home, you're good the next morning. Now, I got to tell you, with the firemen going up to Wrigley, and they all love Wrigley, I think knowing firemen that it might have had a lot to do with the bars outside Wrigley. Is there a special street? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, – the, yeah, the Wrigleyville, it's just bars. It's – it's you're, you've got it, – it is built up over the years, but it's pretty much what – yeah, what you've been told. Yeah, it's it's – a lot of bars are on Wrigley. It's Wave, uh, Waveland area, right? Waveland. Pardon Avenue. me. Yeah. Waveland Avenue. Yeah. Yeah. And so no, uh, wonder, no wonder it smells like the walls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a great analogy because the walls on a Sunday morning, those streets smell like oh, yeah. beyond belief. You're, I was there. I've been there several times and with friends. And it's like, hey, what's that smell? 
I go, New Orleans. <laughs> Ooh. Well, I went there for two weeks and stayed two and a half years. So oh. I, I have a bit of an affinity towards New Orleans. And when were you there? Were you there in the heat? I, I, I got there in 71. Uh, my yeah. brother, my brother, who was a complete lunatic, Lord of Mercy on him, he's dead now. Uh, but he could suck the oxygen out of a room. He was one of those guys. And uh, he had sent me a letter when I was in New York. And he said, let me tell you something. You've got to come down to this town. He says, the closest town to Europe that I found. And then he gave me the clincher. The, the, cl the clinching line in the letter was, the bars are open 24 hours a day. <laughs> he said, they never close. And I says, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping on my fastest horse. I'm on my way. <laughs> And that was it. And I went down to New Orleans for two weeks and then I started attending bar and uh, uh, it was just a great town. And again, since Scott's from Alabama, I got to tell you, I was attending bar Pat O'Brien's, which was the busiest joint in town. And uh, come, come weekends when Alabama was, when Alabama was playing LSU and all those girls blew into town and I had a place in the French Quarter. Man, it was just, it was great to be alive, be 23. And the New oh, York yeah. actually didn't hurt all. It didn't hurt much, I tell you that. And then there was yeah, the same thing with Mississippi. You know, Miss Old Miss was playing LSU, and man, all those girls would come down. And of course, they weren't coming down for the games. When they went to New Orleans, they went for the weekend. And it was party central. And uh it was just a great time to be alive. <laughs> yeah. You know, football was my gateway to New Orleans because the first time I'd ever been to New Orleans was for the uh Florida State Auburn game in the Sugar Bowl. And we yeah. stayed there, you know, four or five days. And I realized pretty quickly New Orleans was a place I wouldn't mind visiting every now and then. He's yeah. got a question. Uh, Auburn or Alabama fan? I went to the University of Alabama at Birmingham. So I'm a UAB Blazer fan. He's now, when I grew up, before UAB got a team, <laughs> I was an Alabama fan. But uh, my dad, uh, Billy, kind of reminded me of my dad because in, in the state of Alabama back in the day, you were either an Alabama or an Auburn fan. My dad rooted for both of them, and when it got to the game where they played at the end of the year, he cheered for the team that had the best chance to finish higher in the rankings. So, so he was kind of Switzerland when it came to that rivalry. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, and the great thing about New Orleans too, and you know, we're talking about you know the nightlife and everything is just the food. The food is amazing, I, I, and nobody, nobody, and I've been fortunate enough to be. I've, I've spread my wings pretty far in this in this world. Nobody does the seafood, but they do in the walls. Oh, it's just yeah. unique. I mean, they just the etouffee and the grilled oysters. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's just it's just I I mean I go back every couple of years because uh, you know I, a lot of my heart's in New Orleans. And you have to probably you know probably have to let your belt out a few times after you get back. Yeah. <laughs> just let me interject. I, I, I'd like to interject something just so the listeners. Don't think Billy is a complete degenerate. <laughs> he was a degenerate gambler. He was a degenerate alcoholic. He was a degenerate drug addict. Uh, he was also a New York City firefighter. At 58 years old, he decided to put the plug in the jug, went back to school at the University of Florida. At 62, got his degree uh, in journalism and has been writing and doing stand-up comedy ever since. So I take my hat off to my partner. William, Thank you, I, Thank salute, you, I, I salute you. My, you know, I know you're Air Force and I'm Navy, but I, as a fellow vet, I salute you on that. And uh, you too, brother, thanks for your service in Iraq. Uh, it could have been no picnic. Uh, well, you know what? I think you know you and I both know it's you know when you're in a combat zone, 
you got to find the humor. Otherwise, and you know, as a firefighter, you know that very well. You've got to find the humor. Otherwise, you're going nuts real quick. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. You got to find the humor and you got to, especially in the combat. So, now, you know, I, uh, my first book, Confessions of a Bronx Bookie, is kind of autobiographical. And uh, yeah. I'm proud of the three chapters I wrote about Dom, too. Uh, and uh, yeah, like Frank said, uh, my fellow Irishman, I was born in County Cork, Island, and my fellow, my, but my fellow Irishman said it the best, Oscar Wilde. He said, the only thing I can't resist is temptation. <laughs> That's the way my life was. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, on that note, we will end here. And uh, hey, we, I, you know, Scott and I both appreciate you coming on and talking the book and everything else under the sun with you. Before we let you go, where can we talked about where you can find the books, but where can we find you guys on the on social media? Um, www.amukandamike.com. And M-I-C for Mike. Uh, it's got uh, our all of our podcasts. It's got all of our blogs. It's got all of our books. You can buy all four of our books on the site. If you want to get an autograph, that's how you do it. Uh, again, it's a, a Mick, a Mook, and a Mike.com. And it's at acclaimpress.com or Amazon. And just put in the name of the book that you want to find, Lamar's Gamble, or If These Lips Could Talk, or Soon uh, Combustible. And you'll find it. All right. And Billy, where can we find, can we find you on Twitter? Yeah, I'm on the Bronx Billy O. uh, Okay. All right. Bronx Billy O on Twitter. Uh, I think that's my tag on Instagram too. I don't use it a lot, but uh, (laughs) I want to leave you guys, Scott and Greg, first of all, thanks for having us on and uh, really been an entertaining uh, chat with you guys. And uh, I'll leave you as a broken down old gambler what they used to tell Vegas the few times that I win. Tell them where you got it. So uh, let them know where, you, where, they, where they can find us if they want to interview us. We're trying to push the book. We think it's a good read. We want to get it out there. Well, we will. It's a great read. It is an awesome read. And we will definitely, and I always do this after every podcast, I let everybody on Twitter know where to find our guests. And hopefully you're going to be getting a few calls from Canada soon, uh, which uh, a good portion of our audience is up north. And um, I know everybody in Canada will enjoy reading this book because we always, Scott and I always say, uh, American football history is also Canadian football history with so many, you know, got, you know, a lot of Americans play up there and vice versa. So it's, it's, it's mutual. So gentlemen, thank you very much. And for everybody listening, we will see you again soon. Take care. Thank Bye-bye. You. The coveted AFC championship trophy is named for a man who many consider among the founders of professional football. Lamar Hunt was born in Arkansas, reared in Dallas, Texas. He wanted nothing more than to bring and own a professional football team to Dallas, so he applied to the NFL for a franchise expansion but got turned down. In 59, he and fellow business partners decided to form an entire new league called the American Football League. He then became owner of the Dallas Texans. The National Football League wanted to be in Dallas too, bringing the Dallas Cowboys, which split the fan base. So, in 1963, Hunt started hunting for a new home for his team. Kansas City Mayor H. Rowe Bartle, also known as Chief, promised home attendance of at least 25000 a game. Hunt agreed to move to Kansas City, and the Dallas Texans became the Kansas City Chiefs, named after Rowe Bartle. In 66, the Chiefs won their first AFL championship and reached the first-ever Super Bowl, known back then as the AFL-NFL championship game. They lost to the Green Bay Packers. Later in 66, the NFL and AFL agreed to merge with a championship game between the two leagues at the end of the season. Well, Hunt had jokingly called it the Super Bowl, 
By the third championship game, the term Super Bowl had stuck. It became official. Hunt had other Major League influences, too, on Kansas City. He founded Major League Soccer. He owned the Kansas City Wizards and other sports franchises. And he also helped establish the Worlds of Fun and Oceans of Fun theme parks. Now, just south of those theme parks is the Hunt-developed Subtropolis. It's 5.5 million square feet, a 110-acre man-made limestone cave, it's still considered the world's largest underground business complex, and a lot of it runs under Worlds of Fun. Hunt was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 72. In the 84-85 season, the NFL established the Lamar Hunt Trophy for the AFC Championship winner, and today, Chiefs players still have an L and an H on their AFC patch on their uniforms. Now, the Chiefs have a chance to bring that trophy home, the trophy named for their beloved founder, Lamar Hunt. This is Elroy Hirsch of the Los Angeles Rams presenting the Rams song. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Hello, football friends. This is Darren Hayes of the Pigskin Dispatch Podcast, and I'd like to invite you to the portal of positive football history, Pigskin Dispatch and PigskinDispatch.com. We talk about everything that centers around the game of American football, expert discussions, the origins of the games, the great players, teams, and coaches, and more, and some great guests and insights from experts. We have new episodes three to four times a week, and you can find us on SportsHistoryNetwork.com, PigskinDispatch.com, or your favorite podcast provider. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com 
forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.